Okay, our scripture for today is Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right. Thank you, Ruth. Good to see you guys. <laughs> okay, so I haven't talked to a lot of people in a very long time. This is a medium amount of people. I'm glad you're here. So, but first, um, I wanted to take a moment to talk about sort of like the why now, why we're back together real quick. Um, two reasons. We, uh, this is our, in case you didn't know, in case you just stumbled in this morning, this is our first time getting together in 10 months. Um, and we've been sort of letting a few people in on Thursday nights for the live recording just to see how it goes. Um, but the fact is this, um, it took us like three months. We picked a date three months ago and we're like, okay, we can get everybody in place and get everything done by then. And uh, we planned it in such a way that, uh, that it would be as safe as possible so that no matter what the numbers did, it wouldn't affect what we're doing because of the amount of steps that we're taking. So, I mean, from, from the seating room, we're below 20% capacity. All the windows and doors are open. It's kind of an outdoor indoor space now. I like it. Um, and uh, somehow it's still cold in here, though. <laughs> somehow, still cold. It's hot out there. It's cold right here. Um, and we got air purifiers everywhere, so like, <laughs> you vapors can like sit around those things. <laughs> um, no, yeah, like we, we put a lot of thought into this. And so everyone online like wondering what we're doing, we're doing our best. <laughs> we're doing everything that we possibly can um, to keep everybody safe. We come in those ways, we go out those ways, and we hang out here. We put, we put a seating section outside that we can lounge and hang out. Um, so vapors, you can hang, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm doing this. Um, and second, there's been a lot of like healing that has needed to be done. A lot of, uh, a lot of um, people are hurting and bodily presence brings healing. And so we're going to find some way to, to, to grant that as much as we can, however we can. Um, so I'm glad you guys came out this morning. There was actually a waiting list of a lot of people. So um, I, I, just being honest... What makes this a little difficult for me is that, like, I think sometimes about what all of this, I didn't plan to say any of this, what all of this means to, I think, the poor. I think about the poor and how they cannot, I feel like they, they can't do anything right now unless they have a smartphone and a, and a monthly payment. And I want you to think about that. I want you to ponder that. How difficult this, this is for the poor who go to church every Sunday and how we can somehow accommodate them who can't sign up, who can't RSVP, who don't have all the supplies that you and I have. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to leave like an over underage percent of like 10 of like uh, probably 10 or 15 spaces for people who don't have access to the things that privileged people like us have and create space for them as well. So, uh, 
if, if you know some people who, who are less than privileged like us that, that uh, need a space to come, um, let us know and we'll save a spot for them. And uh, you can RSVP for them or whatever. So just throwing that out there. Um, I feel like in all of our efforts oftentimes to do what we can to take care of ourselves and provide for ourselves, I feel like oftentimes the people that, that receive a difficult part of that is the poor. Um, and, and right now it even comes down to how they go to church. So ponder that and think about that. Um, so here's our passage this week that uh, Ruth just read. It's, it's about an argument that takes place. And so today we're going to talk sort of about failure. We're going to talk about redemption. And it's going to center on three people. And here's who they are. I don't have a lot of visuals today because I just wanted you to sort of... Uh, uh, what happened? I have a red box on my screen. There we go. Oh, these dudes. I don't know what's happening here. It's, it's in autopilot. It's like, a, it's like a Tesla. I don't know what's happening. Give me a second. It's taking us somewhere. Here we go. These three guys. St. Barnabas, St. Paul, and St. Mark. And so what this is going to be is sort of three sermons. Short ones. Not Tommy ones. There's going to be one about St. Barnabas, first off. There's going to be one about St. Paul. And there's going to be one about St. Mark. Because they are all wrapped up in this story that we just read. This story of division and strife. In case you didn't pick up on what's going on. Um, I'm going to fill you in on all the details, and I'm going to give you sort of the different angles of the different people, because every argument and every moment of strife and division has multiple angles, and sometimes you need to look at all of them um, to maybe see what God is doing, what we should be doing, how we should respond, Uh, and so that's what we're going to do now. I'm going to start off with a word of prayer, and then we're going to talk about this guy right here, Barnabas. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people that you have brought here into this space. I pray that right now you would be present with us, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would bring to our minds exactly what needs to be in our minds. If there are instances of division and strife in our hearts, in our families, in our communities, I pray that you would bring those to our mind now, the exact things that we need to deal with. Um, give us perspective. Give us the nuance that it needs. Give us uh, the, the understanding of, of the role that these moments play in our life and how they form us and fashion us either towards you or away from you, towards each other or away from each other. I pray that you would be in all of this. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so Barnabas is a man of empathy. We've talked about him before. Um, He is a man who cares about the plight of other people. He doesn't want anyone to be lonely. He doesn't want anyone to be left behind. He He is an encourager. He is always present in the life of the people around him. Some people exist, uh, to, and, and they live for making others better. Some people even exist to make others look better, to serve people in that way, to help sculpt their image for other people. They, they end up working usually in like PR. Um, some people, like, they, they care about how other people are perceived by everyone else around them because they see them as a jewel and a wonderful person and they want you to see what they see. And some people thrive in this. Um, I'm married to one of them. It's really wonderful. Like, really, they, they really paint the people in the absolute best light. This was Barnabas. Um, there was a moment early on where Paul comes to Christ, and the disciples didn't trust Paul because Paul was a murderer. He had rounded them up, and he had spent time killing them. And so Paul, uh, Barabbas goes, uh, Barnabas, <laughs> Barnabas goes to Paul and takes Paul to the Christians and says, hey, I need you to roll the dice with this guy. I need you to take a chance on him. 
I see something in Paul that you don't see. God is calling Paul to minister to the Gentiles. He is going to have a major work in the lives of the church. And so you need to trust Paul. Barnabas was that person, and Paul can, help, can owe his entire ministry to Barnabas. Everything that Paul accomplished goes all the way back to the moment where Barnabas stood up and got everyone on Paul's side so that they would follow him. And so because of his hope and in people, his faithfulness to people, Paul trusted in his friend Barnabas. They had traveled to Jerusalem together. Side by side, they had argued the case for Gentile inclusion in the Jewish Christian church. So the problem is that sometimes this trusting and this believing in other people was a detriment to Barnabas. Sometimes... Uh, it caused Barnabas to put his trust in people that he shouldn't have. Um, People that he wanted to sort of comfort and and support people who didn't need to be supported. There was this moment uh, when they're in, uh, in, Paul writes about it in the book of, of Galatians, where Barnabas and Peter end up taking part in segregation in the church. There were these church leaders who said, so the Jews can eat at these tables and the Gentiles can eat at these tables and we're gonna keep them separate. And they had convinced Peter, they had convinced Barnabas that this is how it should be. And Barnabas is a really supportive guy. He doesn't wanna rock the boat, he's hopeful. And so he just goes along with it and he allows segregation in the church to continue. And it breaks Paul's trust with him. Paul has a hard time with this. Paul writes, even Barnabas was taken away by their nonsense. And so that would leave a bitter taste in Paul's mouth. And then there's this moment with Mark that completely obliterates the whole relationship with, with Paul and Barnabas, the one that had been so close. It all comes together around Barnabas' nephew, Mark. They, it was, Mark was Barnabas' um, um, nephew. They had grown up together, and Mark had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But the problem is, once they got off the boat in Turkey... Mark realized what they were actually doing. Mark realized that they were sort of acting as an insurgent nation, representatives of a whole other kingdom, entering into this pagan world to plant another nation. And it's kind of a, a subversive way of living. And it's dangerous. And people are killed all the time for this. And Mark is terrified. So they land in Turkey and Mark gets walking around and Mark starts seeing what they're doing. And Mark freaks out and Mark runs back home. And leaves Paul and Barnabas there without him, which is incredibly dangerous because now they can literally die through the lack of support that they have from Mark. And Paul never got over this. Um, So Paul, at some point, Paul goes to Barnabas and says, hey, we're going to go on another missionary trip, gather up your things. And Barnabas says, great, I'm bringing Mark again. And Paul looks at him and says, no, you aren't bringing Mark again. Mark is dangerous. Mark's not trustworthy. I will not go with you if you bring Mark. And it causes this huge rift and this huge problem with all of them. And they get in this huge fight and this this disagreement and they end up separating because Barnabas wants to give Mark a second chance. Barnabas believes in redemption. He believes that no matter how far people fall, they can be brought back, they can be restored, they can be made whole again. Um, And Paul is over here basically saying, not on but you're not going to take that risk with me. Like, my life is on the line, and I'm not going to allow Mark to come again. And so they end up in this bitter quarrel, and and Barnabas and Mark head off back to Antioch, um, and 
Paul goes and gets Silas, and he heads off on his journey. Paul would just have none of it. And here's the thing. Perhaps Paul was wrong. I think it's, possi- it's a possibility, a major possibility that Paul was wrong. I'm actually going to say that about all three of them. But right now, I'm going to say that about Paul. I think Paul um, had a lot of, probably, honestly, a lot of trauma that he never dealt with. I think Paul had some animosity towards Mark, some bitterness that he never dealt with. I think Paul lacked a forgiving heart and a gracious spirit. Paul forgot that Barnabas himself had done everything that Paul needed to restore him. And he wasn't willing to offer this same grace to Mark at this time. Because grace and love poured out on people, it's always risky. It's always, always risky. You tie yourself to someone, and the problem is that they build up a reputation, and whatever their reputation becomes, yours also becomes as well. But this is the thing about the path of Jesus. Jesus always tied himself to the identities of people who didn't look very good at all. Always. Every one of the disciples that Jesus picked were failures. They were from different sects of Judaism. Matthew himself was a tax collector who had turned on his own people. Um, There's a zealot. There's two fishermen. All these boys had failed out of rabbinical school. And Jesus takes them all as his own and shares his identity with them. This is what Barnabas is doing. And this is as of yet not, not yet what Paul is willing to do. Um, but here's the thing. When you tie yourself to someone and it drags your identity down, you're actually more than anything being Christ-like. Willing to share the table with people who nobody else is willing to share the table with. To stand up and speak up for those whom everyone else is speaking down about. And to sit at their table and to invite them to yours and to join them. So that's Barnabas. Let's talk about Paul. Sermon one. Movement two, if you will. Paul, Paul's work was dangerous. It was incredibly dangerous. It was, he's regularly facing death. He was stoned, left for dead. Barnabas was there. He saw it. Barnabas wasn't stoned because Barnabas was letting Paul do the talking. How convenient. Um, And Paul was beaten and he was left for dead outside the city. They drag him out and they throw him out. He's locked up constantly. At one point, he's shipwrecked. Paul's life was a tragedy, a constant journey of suffering that he endured joyfully and ended up, at the end of his life, getting beheaded for. Paul's life was not easy. Um, how, could Paul, how could Barnabas not support Paul in his decision not to bring Mark? <laughs> Honestly, when Paul says, no, 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 I, I can't. Barnabas was there not too long ago when Paul was stoned nearly to death. If I'm Barnabas, whatever Paul says goes. Like, that's how I'm looking at it. I didn't go through what Paul went through. Um, Paul, in Barnabas, found this incredibly supportive companion most of the time. Barnabas' very name means set of encouragement. Do you know what? So the, the Greek word for encouragement is this, um, is this word. It's, the Greek word is paramethion. Ooh, everyone say paramethion. Okay, we'll work on it. It's been a while. Paramythion, it comes from two Greek words. Paul's always making up new words. Uh, para, is where we get a word for pair. It means side by side. Um, mythion is where we get a word for myth. It means to tell a story. Um, encouragement, paramythion, is coming up beside someone, putting your arm around them and walking with them and speaking and whispering into their ear 
Let me tell you a story that will take you where you need to go. Maybe it's a story of how when you were down, someone came up alongside of you. Maybe it's a story of, maybe it's the story of Christ. Whatever it is, it's the words that this person needs to hear. And Barnabas' name was son of Paramithion. The son, he's the, he is the son of, of, of encouragement. He is the one who walks with you every step of the way saying, you got this. Keep walking. Next step. Come on. We're going to push through. We're going to get to the next part. That is what Barnabas does. That's his role. And he had always been supportive. But that trust that Paul had in Barnabas had taken a serious blow in, 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 his, in the episode where he takes part in the segregation in the church. That was the first riff in Paul's trust of him. And like I said, um, the second was with Mark. Um, people who have been burned by loved ones, people like Paul, being burned by both Barnabas and Mark, people who have been burned by loved ones, um, they understand what Paul is doing here. How Paul says, I, I can't allow this to happen. I, I, I can't take Mark with me. Um, you can forgive, and it's not easy, but it's a process, and you can learn to forgive people, but oftentimes forgiving people, sometimes people like to say, well, you forgive and forget. In other words, you forgive, and then you take the abuser back into your house, or you forgive, and you just go back to the way it was, it was normal. You catch, your, you catch your employee stealing all this money, and then you forgive them, and you give them their job back, but you don't, <laughs> because trust is broken. And trust is built up over a long time, and it's severed very quickly. It's broken very, very quickly. And so oftentimes you forgive, but that doesn't mean things just go back to the way that they were because there's brokenness and there's pain and there needs to be healing. That, that betrayal damages your work. It damages the way you interact with people around you. They carry that trauma with them, that hurt with them, and it affects everything that they do. Um, I've been a pastor for 13 years at this church, and... Um, I've been burned a few times by, by close friends. And when this happens, um, it really does mess with your trust of people. It affects how you trust everyone, how you interact with everyone. And over the years, it's literally, it's driven me to therapy. And I, t- I go to my therapist just to learn how to trust people again. After, after it being absolutely shattered and broken. And perhaps you've experienced people you hold in really high regard. Like you look up to them and... You admire their work and their life, and you're proud of them, and you talk about them. You talk them up to other people all the time, and there comes a moment. I've had it happen over the span of one conversation where they fall from that high place in your life, in your eyes, down to just the bottom. And it's like everything just falls in your eyes, and you say, I, I don't think I actually knew you. You learned something about them. That happened to me once I had this moment where a close friend is lying to my face. And I know they're lying, but they don't know that I know that they're lying. And I don't know what to say. Right? You're like, do I tell them I know? Do I just let them keep talking? This is, this is hurtful and it's embarrassing and I have no idea what to say. And that sticks with you. And it takes a long time for them to work their way back up in your eyes. But it's possible. Restoration is possible. But it's not instant. It's a journey. It takes 
a lot of love, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of mercy and grace on both sides. Um, trust is earned over years and experience, and people show you who they are. And Mark had shown Paul and Barnabas who he was to be untrustworthy. And this isn't something that Paul was willing to get, gamble his life on. And Paul was going to find somebody he could trust. And perhaps Barnabas was wrong in pushing Paul in this way. You can't take people where, where they don't want to go. That has to do with faith, theology, politics. Remember that. You cannot take people where they don't want to go. You cannot force it on them. You cannot coerce people. Um, if something has to be coerced, it is not truth. It is not good. Um, was it Stanley Hauerwas that said, um, he speaks about coercion in the sense of like violence, and he says, anything propped up and held up by violence, it cannot be true. Anything that, ha- when people have to be threatened to accept anything, that thing cannot be true. True things are accepted with open arms and joy and love. And Paul wasn't ready, and Barnabas shouldn't have forced it. So there's another character that we keep talking about. His name is Mark. He's apparently the rabble-rouser, the one that caused all the problems. But let's talk about Mark. Mark is not only related to Barnabas. Barnabas, uh, he's not only like family with Barnabas, but he's also somehow, we're not positive how, but he's related to Peter. Um, and Peter has taken Mark at some point under his wings during some of Mark's failures, and Peter has counseled Mark along the way and poured out into him and helped turn him into the person he needs to be. Peter's the oldest disciple, you know, the, sort of the, the disciple who always speaks the most. Because he's the oldest, he takes the lead. He is... Um, you know, these things, these rabbinical schools in the first century, they had hierarchies, and Peter would have been at the top. So Peter takes Mark under his wing and trains him up. Mark, today, probably because of Peter, Mark is not known necessarily for his failures. Mark is mostly known for this thing he is holding in his hand in this picture. Mark wrote the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Um, and the Gospel of Mark is, I would argue, the most important book in all of the Bible. Uh, Why? Because it was the first gospel written, and in fact, the other gospels would not exist without the book of Mark, because they all, as they're writing their gospels, had obviously a copy of the book of Mark, because you can find every line and every verse of the book of Mark spread throughout these other gospels. Mark is the most important author in the New Testament. Some would say, Paul, I'm going to say Mark. And I would argue his gospel is probably, I don't want to say the most artsy, but it's pretty amazing. And it's, it's probably the most impressive writing. Um, and so this is what Mark is known for. That's why he's always depicted in these ancient icons with, he's got his book that he wrote. Um, sort of the, the foundation of, of the gospels that were written. But what what most people don't realize is that Mark himself, oh, by the way, uh, the book of Mark, random facts keep popping in my brain, Um, the the book of Mark was only written because Peter prompted Mark to write these things. And so really, when you're reading Peter's lines in the book of Mark, you're like reading Peter speaking 
in Mark's ear, like, and here's what I did, and here's what I said. Because there's parts in the, in, the, in the story where Mark isn't there and Peter is. And so you can see Peter with him there, like, and write this. Here's what I said. Right? Like, Peter played a huge role in Mark's life and in the writing of these texts, okay? Now, what most people don't realize is that Mark actually has a history of failure. He was a huge failure. He did it a bunch. Um, perhaps the most interesting fail that we can find happens in Mark 14. Watch this. Uh, this is, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and all these troops come, you know the story, with their spears and are threatening Jesus. And so there's this throwaway line that people ignore, and it says this in Mark 14, uh, 51, 52. It says, Then everyone deserted Jesus and fled, and a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. But when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. What is that doing in the story? That has no part in the story. But New Testament scholars are almost unanimous in saying, that is Mark writing himself into the story. <laughs> Nobody else is there. Um, it, was, it was in the ancient world, it was customary in the ancient world not to identify yourself in a story you were writing. If you were one of the characters, you do not identify yourself. Instead, you do something like this. You make all the other characters go away. And so it's just you and only you can know this. Only you know you were naked in the garden that night. <laughs> Why would you tell everyone this shameful act that you did? Because you want people to know who you are. You want people to know the person writing this book hasn't always been the spiritual warrior. I haven't been. I was a failure, and I can be found running away. The moment Jesus needed us there, I can be found running away naked, just leaving my clothes terrified for my life. Um, Mark had a history of, of running away. When things got scary, he just got up and ran. That's what he did. That's who he was. He was terrified. He was a coward. Let's just say it. But Mark, his failures were not the end of it. We know this. Not only because we have the gospel of Mark, but Mark is also mentioned at the conclusion of, of um, the first epistle, uh, when Peter calls Mark his son and talks greatly about him, and how fitting it is that Peter took Mark under his wing. Peter, Peter who had denied Jesus, Peter himself was a failure. That's like the, the constant running theme. These guys were failures. Peter denies Jesus three times. In one of the descriptions of, of, of Peter's denying of Jesus, it literally tells us, I think it's, it's Luke that tells us this, that Peter is an earshot of Jesus. Jesus can see and hear Peter standing by the campfire, and people are like, weren't you one of his followers? He goes like, no, I was not one of his followers. And they're like, yeah, I can, you have an accent. You're like, you're speaking broken Galilean. Like, I, I can hear your accent. You're one of his followers. You're all from the same place. He goes, no, I never knew the guy. And the passage says that when he said this, it says Jesus turned and looked at him in the eye. Like the weight that must have fallen on his shoulders. Mark knows what failure's like. Mark goes running, uh, I mean, Peter knows what failure's like. Peter goes running to Mark to be that encourager to him, that paramethion, to walk with him. Um, and there's more. A, a considerable time later, we're talking probably a decade or so, in Paul's letter to the church in, in Colossae, he mentions, like Paul's writing from prison, and he's chained up, and he's writing, and he mentions that Mark has rejoined him his company. 
not sure if that meant Mark spent time in prison with him. Maybe. It's possible that Mark actually had grown so much that he was willing to finally face scary things and suffer prison time with Paul. Second, you have in, uh, in 2 Timothy, the very last epistle uh, in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy, you have Paul writing a letter shortly before his head was cut off. Paul writes a letter, and, and he writes this letter telling, tip, tell, telling Timothy, he says, do your best to come quickly and get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So he calls out, he says, hey, Timothy, I'm going to die soon. What I need to see, the person I need to see is Mark. Can you imagine? The failures aren't the end of it. The bitterness, the brokenness isn't the end of it. That somehow, it took a long time, but they patched it up and they became brothers. Phileo, as Paul would call it. That doesn't just mean like brothers like bros. It means like sibling. That's what it means. Like we were siblings. This is what God does. Resurrection. This is what God does. And they all should have known better than to fall apart like this. Failures happen. They happen all the time. And oftentimes we don't know what to do with them. But what's interesting about this particular situation is, uh, in hindsight, the situation, the, the, the way things finally ended with... Uh, with the solution that they came up with, with Barnabas and Mark going back to Cyprus and Paul and Silas going on to Galatia and the other places, that's actually not a bad solution. And they probably could have come to this conclusion that this should be the solution without being jerks to each other. But Luke tells us that instead, this became a, a bitter fight. The Greek word there is, is paroxysmos, um, seismos is where we get our word for like earthquake seismology. Seismos is the Greek word for earthquake. So this, Luke says like, this little division became an earthquake in their midst. It became this bitter, terrible, raging fight. Imagine the rest of the Antiochian church, these new believers, watching the apostles fight like this. All sitting around watching them destroy their image of Christ in themselves in this way and in each other. That must have been an awful sight. Um, I mean, so often Paul talks about being forgiving and merciful and when the fight happens, it all just goes right out the window, right? Married couples that, that will tell you this that are working through like counseling and stuff, they'll tell you like, you work on all these rules for fighting, and, and uh, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to talk about your mother. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to blame things on your childhood or your dad. Um, and they come up with rules for how they're going to communicate. But the problem is sometimes you get in the fight and it gets really bitter, and all those rules just, first thing to go is the rules, and then a plate, right? Like, like they fight. I'm not talking about my marriage, okay? Relax. And what if I was? We can... We can heal. We can work through it. Um, like, it's really difficult in the moment to be the presence of Christ. It's incredibly difficult. But eventually, somehow, they figured this out. And they were able to hash it all out and come together again. What was needed, really, is generosity. Oftentimes, we talk about generosity, and we're talking about generosity as it refers to money, economics, but generosity is much more than that, than being open-handed with your things. Generosity is also um, 
Generosity of thought. Generosity of thought of how you think about people. Not thinking the worst of people. Not saying the worst of people. Trying your best to say good things and uplifting things about others. People's failures are not who they are. They are not their identity. Paul had tied Mark's identity to his failures, but failures are not who you are. They are just things that you have done. And you don't have to do these things again. If that's who you are, then we're hopeless. And I know oftentimes people have, have message, methods of presenting the gospel that want to attach all these terrible ways of you talking about yourself. But ultimately, the message of God is that's not actually what you are. You are a person with a vocation and an office created in the image of God, put here so that the world can see what God looks like. That is how you are to move through this world. People's failures are not who they are. Their failures are the things that they have done. That is all. The people that you trust, that you look up to, that you want to be like, they will one day become human for you. You will see a side of them that you do not like. And then you get to choose whether or not you can still embrace that person despite of that thing. God's love for us is not dependent on the things that we've done. It's actually despite the things that we have done. And God is calling us to embrace that kind of love. Loving people, not because they deserve your love, but because by loving them, they will become more lovable, more beautiful, and more deserving of your love. That is how it works. There's a path from failure to redemption, but it cannot be traveled alone. The, the failed person needs a Barnabas. The failed person needs a Peter. If you, if you are a failure, if, if you look back and, and all you see is like the tragedies in your life, if when you talk to your family, they're always bringing up the terrible things that you have done, if when you look at, um, at the old pictures of yourself, all that pops into your head is, I cannot believe that that was me. Just know that God's greatest work is resurrection, that that's what it is. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. These are not the things that define you. What defines you is your vocation, what you were created to be. And your vocation is not your work. It's not how you make money. Your vocation is the role you play in this world to be the faithful presence of Jesus in your neighborhood, on your streets, in the store, in interactions, wherever you are throughout that particular day. People need someone to stick with them. The fa- people who have failed need someone to stick with them, someone to propose a new path forward, someone who doesn't need to dredge up their old failures, but who can, who can stir up a whole new vision for what life can be. And what the world needs is a people who can see a better future for society and who can speak that into existence and who can bring that into existence with their own presence. Last year, I'm going to end with this. Last year, I think it was last year, in one of my sermons, I talked about a friend of mine. I just wanted to bring that up again because it's, uh, it's pertinent to this conversation. A kid I grew up with, his name was Eric. I won't bring up his last name. You don't need to Google. <laughs> Eric, um, he was a pastor. He was a little younger than me. And he hurt himself and got uh, a prescription for opioids to cover the pain. Of course, he got addicted to opioids, as so many people do. And that addiction was unbearable. And eventually when the prescriptions ran out, he could not, he couldn't even be present. He couldn't even go through a day without suffering intensely because of the withdrawals. And so naturally, 
He started seeing if he could get some here and there, and eventually he got raided by the FBI. Um, and everyone in his church shunned him instantly, like he had died, leaving terrible notes in his door, threatening messages in their email inbox, talking constantly about how you ruined the reputation of our church. And there was no attempt to restore, there was no attempt to redeem, and it ended with him killing himself and leaving his wife, now a widow, with three young boys. This is what we do when we do not see redemption and restoration as an option. We take the name of God and we use the name of God to lay heavy, heavy burdens on other people that they ought not bear and that we were never given responsibility to lay on them. We have been put here to pour ourselves out for each other, however that looks. Whether it's pouring out your own reputation in support of someone who everyone hates, whether it's doing whatever you can to provide for their restoration financially, taking them in, being present with them. That is who we are. That is our role. We cannot neglect that. We cannot forget that. I talked to my friend two weeks before he, before he died on the phone. I was in this room setting up for something, and I got a phone call, and I was pacing around the room talking to him as he was explaining all of this to me. And he told me, point blank, he says, he says, do I even have a future? Is this, I have no way forward. My entire life has been training for the pastorate. And a back injury set me on this path. And everything is gone. My own family won't talk to me. And I, I was just trying to encourage him and say, no, like this is not, obviously not who you are. And I think if I had realized the weight that he was under, I think looking back now, I probably would have had a lot more to say. So those things that pop into your mind when people are reaching out to you, say them. Encourage them. Lay it on the line for them. Don't hold back. People need rest restoration. They need resurrection. People every day do and say terrible things that do not define who they are. And you know that. And what they need is for you to come running. And with that, I'm going to pray, and then I want to enter into a time of our, uh, our collect prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Thank you for being present here with us. Continue to guide us forward. We love you, Father. Restore us, restore our world, restore our relationships, all of it. In your name, amen. So if you would stand with me, we don't do communion right now. Um... Instead, we've replaced that with the Kalak prayer. <clears throat> and so I have it here. Our prayer team writes them every week. And so we're going to say this, and we're going to say it loud, as if we mean it, as if we are the people of Israel in the middle of the wilderness, crying out to God like this is our prayer this morning. Shall we? Let's do it. <clears throat> Emmanuel, who became flesh and dwelt with us, be with us in our waiting, in our sorrow and in our joy, as we live within the expectancy of your goodness. Bind our hearts together in unity and peace as we carry your presence in the world, bringing your kingdom to earth.
Amen. Grace and peace, everyone. Love you all. It's wonderful being back here with you. Grace and peace, all of you. So if you want to hang out with us, we can spend time outside and, uh, and catch up, if you will.